Welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Janelle. And I am Vicky. And this is the nicest we're going to be <laughs> oh. for this episode. I mean. <laughs> Something to ease you in. Yeah. It'll be, it's going to be a heck of an episode. Oh yeah. It's a doozy. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. What, what a, what a time to join us. <laughs> What a time to be alive. <laughs> what a time to be alive. Jill and I are still recording from quarantine, although I feel like we're getting closer and closer to being back together again. I know. I got Soon. my juice. I've been juiced. <laughs> By the time this comes out, I will also have had my 5G installed. Yes. And I can't wait for better internet. Oh, God. <laughs> I did. It's funny because I did just get a 5G phone. <laughs> new so i'm like does this mean my 5g phone is gonna get even better reception wait once it starts kicking in you get yeah. so much free weefy so much free weefies <laughs> <laughs> all right we're gonna get on to our great episode today but first let's head over to the newsroom Again this week, our news comes from Florida. I feel like after not like recording some new content for a little while, there's just a lot that's been going on in Florida that we haven't been able to talk about. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so this week, uh, a woman in Naples, Florida is wanted by police after swindling 10 different victims out of $100,000. So what happened is the victims had responded to an ad that she placed in free newspapers on radio stations and flyers and laundromats that offered a 100% guarantee in dealing with wife or girlfriend issues using witchcraft. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after doing some incredibly witchcrafty things like <laughs> let's see i had to pull up the article for this this is from click orlando okay so it says a witch that, jar <laughs> a what a witch jar did she make a witch jar what's a witch jar it's a spell where you put all of the things inside of a jar and seal it and generally you oh. bury it <laughs> no um <laughs> She, let's see. I practice the, the dark arts. <laughs> the first victim says that the woman whose name was, uh, she had given her name as Rosalia, pulled out a deck of tarot cards and told the victim she sent something dark in his life. Oh boy. Okay. So she instructed him to fix the darkness by sleeping with three eggs under his bed and then return Ooh. with the eggs the next day. This sounds like some Santeria stuff. Yes. Yeah. You said eggs. I was like, Santeria? <laughs> Definitely. 
Yeah, because they said a lot of most of the like free newspapers were Hispanic newspapers. So I think mm-hmm. there is like a Santeria deal going on. So he did that. He put them under his bed, went back, and she waved them over the victim's head before she opened them up to reveal that one contained blood, another Hell contained yes. needles. This and is Santeria. <laughs> the third contained worms. Sick. Okay. <laughs> so after that, she said, okay, so here's how we solve this. You need to get as much money as possible and bring it back to me and I will bless your money, which would make it double or possibly triple in quantity, right? Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. So he went after away. After I take half. <laughs> He went away. Oh, no. (laughs) Got all he like borrowed from people and like pulled out all this money. In this case, he returned with twenty nine thousand five hundred dollars. Damn. And Rosalia took the cash. She went to bless it. But she said, oh, I see some darkness in this money. I need to take this money to a temple in Fort Myers and then I'll give it back to you tomorrow. Wink, wink. So <laughs> tomorrow comes around and she says, oh, I need to reschedule the appointment. And then she st- completely stops responding to any messages or any phone calls or anything. Disappears with this money. So there's other like when police went by, there were other people waiting outside of her like apartment with money, like waiting to get it blessed. And police are looking out for her. She's described as Hispanic or Eastern European with an unknown accent, medium build, blonde hair with dark brown roots and light brown eyes. She's about five feet, two inches tall. There are some sketches out that we'll put in the research links to this episode. If you look at these sketches and you know anything, you can contact the Naples Police Department at 239-213-4844. But homegirl has not been caught yet, from what I can tell. Yeah, I wouldn't tattle. <laughs> I mean, she really is a bruja. Don't tattle. <laughs> That's all I gotta say. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> all right, we're gonna move on to Netflix and Kill. Where this week we are talking about this is a robbery, the world's biggest art heist. Hell yeah! <laughs> yeah, this was good. This one was really interesting. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. So in 1990, 13 works of art worth $50 million were stolen from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston by two men dressed as Boston police. I know this wasn't (laughs) intentional, but I realized like, oh, shit, there is a lot. Boston's fucked up, man. (laughs) Yeah. So the artwork included pieces by Rembrandt, Vermeer, Degas, and Monet. And the museum has offered a $10 million reward, but has been unable to recover any of the artwork. It's still on their website. The the <laughs> reward? Yeah. Oh, really? Yep. <laughs> Interesting. I didn't even look at their website. I guess I should have, huh? So no arrests have been made in this case. There is some speculation that has been made that either the Irish mob or more likely the Italian mafia was involved in the heist. So that's like the setup for this whole documentary. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, the amount of like, because this is definitely one of those cases that's just rife with theories and conspiracies oh, yeah. and like mm-hmm. moving, you know, this this specific mobster is connected to this person who moved these things from here to here. And then there was this one time this thing happened where they said something about a Rembrandt. And mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's that's like 
the whole thing. And they're just constantly chasing these leads and never really catching a break. Uh, what did you think, Miss like Art World herself? <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, Art World embodied. <laughs> Full of shit. Uh, <laughs> I liked it a lot. I thought it was very interesting. I had kind of known a little bit about it just because, like, in a couple of my art history classes that I've taken, we've discussed things like this and mm-hmm. forgeries and whatnot. The whole thing is, it's, ve- <laughs> I don't know if this is an insult, but it's very Boston. The way in which, <laughs> the way in which they stole everything, they like cut the shit out of the frames really haphazardly. Yeah. They took random shit that wasn't really worth anything. Yeah. So they talk about it being sort of weird. It's almost like a specific list of things that they were looking for when they went Mm -hmm. in. And it wasn't just paintings. There was like a Chinese vase, I think, that had been stolen. They were taking gold pieces off the tops of like fucking flags and shit. Like, oh, yeah. Weird, very weird, random things. They took a bunch of prints and sketches which mm-hmm. were small and easy to steal but like also not really worth a whole lot yeah and then they cut all of the stuff that was worth a whole shit ton out of the fucking frames so basically worth nothing <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it's it's interesting because they there is and they talk about this in the beginning a little bit the museum itself Isabella Stewart Gardner, who set this whole built this building and and filled it with all of this artwork had said in her will that nothing can be changed Uh otherwise the property reverts to somebody else or the city Uh or i'm not sure who it reverts to but so even though these paintings have been stolen they've had to just put the empty frames back on the wall giant giant emptiness (laughs) which is very eerie they have these sections of the documentary where they switch from like the images from when the museum was broken into to now, where it's literally just an em- the the original frame just empty because they can't change anything per her will in the museum, which I found yeah. interesting. Yeah, the thing about that is like if you're gonna steal art and it's gonna be expensive art, don't fucking cut it from the frame. Yeah, you idiots. If you want, like, it's not uncommon for people to paint things on the canvas and then stretch it over a frame, like. Do your due diligence. Don't mm-hmm. harm the art. T- remove it from the back like a good robber, which is why I think it was somebody who had no fucking clue what they were doing. <laughs> right. Right. And the way that they tied up the guard with the duct tape, they had no fucking clue what no. they were doing. <laughs> it was like around his head from chin to forehead, like that mm-hmm. way. And then there was like one piece around horizontally around his eyes, I think. Yeah. And no the dude sense. has this long, curly, he was a hippie. massive amount of hair. <laughs> yeah. I'm, which I'm always thinking like, man, that duct tape and that hair had to be yeah. a bitch to get out and off. Mm-hmm. The other thing they talk about, too, is once you cut them out of the frame, the only way to transport them is to roll them up, which is, mm-hmm. like, hugely damaging to these paintings oh, yeah. that Hundreds are, of years old. Right. You know, cracking the paint and the fabric, like... And the way that, like, paint was made back then is, like, you're mixing, like, raw pigmented powder into, like, egg yolks and shit, okay? Mm-hmm. It is extremely volatile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's sad. It's really sad, I think, if you're an art lover to just, like... Oh, yeah. 
think That's about what, what happened the to these. They said they cut it. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> they cut it from the frame. It's worse Janelle than the Janelle died a little itself. inside. You know, cut it. Oh, God. It's like 300-year-old linen. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. If, yeah. I do wonder if they're ever going to find these things just like buried in a trunk somewhere, you know, but who knows? It's, uh, you know, I, we've talked previously where sometimes people just get art and then put it in a storage unit, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I could equally see somebody just being like, I have this Rembrandt. I know it's stolen. I'm just going <laughs> to buy it and keep it in this storage unit to show off to people who I trust, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, it's a good watch. It's really interesting if you like rabbit holes and crazy theories. Mm-hmm. It's called This is a Robbery of the World's Biggest Art Heist, and it is on Netflix right now. This is that part of the show where we say concept may not be appropriate for our listeners. We're talking about murder. Duh. <laughs> so, yeah, heads up on that. But, you know, <laughs> what are we talking about today? All right, my wonderful friends. In case you didn't know this about me, in case you haven't been listening for the past bajillion D episodes, I used to be. <laughs> A bit of a punk. <laughs> she That is such an understatement. She yeah. was a big time punk. I was a big punk. Yeah. Um, so I have a really big love of music. I have an unnecessarily large record collection. So I thought that we could take a look at some murders revolving around the music industry. And really, like, the music <laughs> industry is rife with crime and murder crime. and fraud <laughs> and abuse and just, like, tons of crazy shit, so... So I wanted to reach back into my roots, my punk rock roots, and we're going to talk about Sid and Nancy. Oh, my God. Yay. I wasn't (laughs) really excited to talk about this because this is a story that I know a little bit about, but I have never had like a full deep dive into this whole thing. I feel like that's the case for a lot of people. So this will be exciting Mm -hmm. for everyone, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Not just for me as I geeked out while writing it. So I was actually 12 the first time I ever heard, never mind the bollocks, here comes the Sex Pistols, um, which is probably too young. Probably. Um, <laughs> it was probably too young. It was the song yeah. about abortion on there. It's never too young to get political. <laughs> I mean, I was political, so. <laughs> I, my grandma lived in Cleveland. Um, that's where she was from. And we would go visit her every summer. And we were at a music store and I heard it playing and I was like, what is this? And they're like, oh, it's the Sex Pistols. And I'm like, please direct me to the Sex Pistols section. And I bought it. <laughs> nice. And I, I played that CD in my little Walkman on repeat the entire ride back from Ohio. <laughs> okay. In the back of our giant van. It, it was oh so 90s. <laughs> I'm having flashbacks to doing the exact same thing. Like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was interesting, the following year, when I went to visit my grandma again, there was actually an exhibition about punk rock and the origins of punk rock at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So I asked if we could go and see it. And my dad, my dad actually was a musician when he was younger. And um, he was actually really big into the Cleveland music scene and actually knew some of the punk bands around then. Like, he went and saw the Ramones. Like, he he knew a thing or two. Um, so he was like, yeah, fuck yeah, we'll go. So this is actually where this exhibition is where I learned about the Sex Pistols and the tragedy that was Sid and Nancy. So if you're not familiar with the Sex Pistols, let me just let me just posit that my aim name for the longest time was Sex Pistols Punks. Okay. <laughs> oh my god, that doesn't surprise me. 
There is a tidbit of information about me for you. <laughs> so the Sex Pistols were a British 77 band, and that is just a general term for late 70s punk rock music, in case you didn't know. They actually formed in 1975 in London, but that's like the, you know, there's waves of punk rock music. So that was like the first wave of punk rock music. Originally, the members were Johnny Rotten, uh, lead singer, general bad boy in a mohair sweater, mm-hmm. guitarist Steve Jones, drummer Paul Cook, and the bassist Glenn Matlick. Now, Matlick was replaced by Sid Vicious in 1977. Uh, the Sex Pistols were huge in England, and they only actually officially recorded one studio album. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. Vicious later joined the band, and when Matlock couldn't take it anymore, Johnny Rotten was like, it's fine, fuck you. I've got a friend. I've got a mate. I've got a mate who could take over. It's fine. Technically, Sid Vicious never really recorded with the band. <laughs> oh. So the the album was all pretty much Matlock. So Vicious is also a really shit bassist, <laughs> to be perfectly blunt. Really? You don't need to be a good guitar player or bassist to be in a punk band. That's literally the fucking point. (laughs) Yeah, true. So he was a shit bassist. He could barely play the fucking bass, but he looked, he looked the part. And that's what they were. He had the attitude and the look. And that's what they were looking for. Yeah, that's like 90% of punk. (laughs) Yes. If you see any pictures of me in high school, I have a Sid Vicious necklace, which is a padlock on a chain. Yep. Like, you don't even know, okay? <laughs> I was I was in school with this girl in high school, and I remember you hanging around with all the punk kids, and you did the mohawk for a while, didn't you? I had a, che- yes, a Chelsea. I had a Chelsea. Yes. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. That's a female mohawk where you don't have to put it up all the time. It's cut in a specific way, so when it's down, it looks like it's yes. normal. <laughs> yes. You had that, and I remember lots of leather and studs mm. and fishnets and shit kickers and yes. yeah, yes, girl. Oh yeah, <laughs> I remember high school Janelle. Uh, sometimes I I miss I miss that aesthetic. Sometimes mm. <laughs> sometimes I miss yeah. torn fishnets and uh, army surplus boots covered in chains. I think now, I think people now looking at you would never assume that you did that because now you have a very like 50s aesthetic. Like it's, it's very, true. it's like the total opposite <laughs> of like. I still have my extensive fishnet collection and I still have shit kicker boots. Like I'm, they're right here next to me. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you went from like punk to pinup girl, which is amazing. Yes. It's a very interesting transformation. Yeah. Um, which is why when people look at my music, they're like, holy fucking shit. Yeah. They're like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Uh, I just, I realize that you don't always have to play dress up and be the part in order to enjoy the music. No. Which I feel like, no. you know, it was a place and a time for me. Yes. <laughs> so mm. back to the sex pistols. <laughs> Johnny Rotten was good friends with Sid Vicious, which is really, like, how he got into the band. Shortly after he joined, he met Nancy Spungen, who was an American rock and roll groupie and ultimately led to the demise of this band and both Oh, great. (laughs) So, cool, cool, cool. Great. (laughs) Uh, Nancy Spungen was from Philadelphia and was born into a very wealthy kind of upper middle class family, which if you look at her, you'd be like, the fuck? (laughs) Yeah. When she was a baby, she cried 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And because this was the 60s, they gave this three-month-old baby barbiturates. 
to help oh, her sleep and to stop okay. crying. So, great. Now you can see where the addiction problem comes into play. <laughs> yeah. She was diagnosed as schizophrenic when she was only 15 years old. She was very temperamental, extremely violent as a child, and even tried to kill herself repeatedly. Mm -hmm. She was, however, extremely smart, and she graduated from high school early at fucking 15. Wow. She began college at 16 in Colorado, but was eventually expelled due to arrests for marijuana possession and destroying college property. That literally sounds like my teenage years. <laughs> yep. Yeah. She was just doing it in college. <laughs> you know? But she was 16. So yeah. So after she got expelled, she decided to move to New York at 17 and began following bands around, becoming a bit of a groupie. Uh, she followed around the New York Dolls, the Ramones. She was really good friends with Johnny Thunders, which he was the worst heroin addict at the time. I mean, weren't they all? I mean, really. There was, yeah. I watched a shit ton of documentaries and they kind of were talking about the heroin problem in the punk scene. And they were talking about how the London guys were lightweights and that they couldn't take their heroin and that the New York guys would fucking shoot them up under a rug. And I was like, that is not a competition I ever want to be a part of. <laughs> no. And honestly, like the punk scene, heroin was like really prolific, but it was oh God, yeah. like the whole rock scene at the time. Like heroin oh, yeah. was just a big deal at that time. It's it was, crazy. It was looked at as like a drug of the streets right because like mm -hmm. cocaine was a drug of disco and it was mm -hmm. the drug that all the fucking you know rich people were taking and if you wanted to live fast and hard you did heroin and you didn't take yep. that pussy ass cocaine shit yeah yeah <laughs> so this is a problem she's yeah. hanging out with a big huge heroin addict and so she herself becomes a massive fucking heroin addict as you do to support herself, she was a sex worker. They called strippers at this time go-go dancers, too. Mm. So she was also a go-go dancer, but she also worked the street. Mm -hmm. She didn't really work very hard. She didn't have a lot of money most of the time because she was spending all on fucking heroin. Right. So she would make $250 in one night and then blow it all on fucking drugs. Jesus. <laughs> Which $250 in the late 70s in one night, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. So she was getting sick of New York, and she decided to move over to London in 1977 as the punk scene was exploding there. So Spongen decided to follow her her buds, Johnny Thunders and Jerry Nolan of the Heartbreakers, to London. And that's how she met Sid Vicious. Now, full disclosure, she was not entirely invited by these guys. Oh. <laughs> okay. She was good friends with Johnny Thunders, and he was like, yeah, if you can come over, come over. But their manager would not let her see the band. They were like, absolutely oh. not. You were not welcome here. She had wow. a bit of a reputation, and a lot of the guys called her nauseating Nancy because she was very loud, very brash, and she was always fucking high. Oh, my God. <laughs> so Sid Vicious was already a bit of a drug user, but when he met Nancy, shit went downhill so fucking fast. What? Yeah. It was the most toxic relationship anyone on the face of the planet could ever have. And let me tell you, the drugs and the music had a whole lot to do with it. I dated many a punk in my day, and boy howdy, it did not end well. <laughs> yeah, I am not surprised by that at all. 
So they immediately moved in together and were doing drugs 24-7. They'd beat the shit out of each other and then destroy every single place that they lived in. Oh my god. And the drugs fed this cycle and made it ten times worse. And Spongin often egged people on and she would scream in public places and she would stir the pot. And she basically supplied Vicious with so much heroin that he was in a constant state of delusion and anger. Now, she was essentially the Yoko Ono of this situation. <laughs> and she oh she okay. was truly credited with being the big reason why the Sex Pistols broke up. Oh my god. A literal Ono. She was portrayed in movies and books as an ultimate villain. But this was, I think, really exaggerated. It was more than what she was in real life. She became this villain quite a bit because she was a loose cannon. Yes, yes. She was a loose cannon. Absolutely. But you have to remember that she was fucking schizophrenic, not on meds, and doing heroin. Yeah. Like, how much of what she said and did was really truly her and not the drugs talking? You have to kind of take it with a grain of salt. That kind of mental illness is, like, so severely exacerbated by doing hard drugs like that. Like, oh, yes. There's no way, especially if it was not being treated, like literally in any way, shape, or form, that she would have survived that. Yeah. So I wanted to play, she was actually interviewed quite a few times in the short time that her and Sibishas were together. And I wanted to play a few clips so that you can actually get an idea of how she truly was. Because there is a movie called Sid and Nancy that has Gary Oldman in it. And I love that movie. Don't get me wrong, it's fucking great. But it is okay. full of bullshit. It is oh God, okay. the most exaggerated fucking story of Sid and Nancy there is out there. I, let me tell you, Gary Oldman is Sid Vicious. Lord, I melt. Oh, oh, oh yeah? Okay, hold on a second. Oh, I can't. Gary something Oldman, about it. Gary Oldman is Sid Vicious. Sid Vicious. Oh, Here we go. Hachi machi, that's all I have to say. Um, oh, my God. <laughs> but the woman that they got to play Nancy... <laughs> She did this voice where she was like, ah, Sid, Sid. And it's like not how Nancy Spongeon sounded at all. I did. I think they did her a great disservice, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, it made it made an interesting story. So there you go. (laughs) What do you think? What do you think, Vicky? (laughs) Um, Such a cup of tea. (laughs) Yeah, this is definitely your thing. Specific cup of tea. This is your <laughs> specific thing. Um, so, I mean, he's fine. <laughs> he's I need fine. A moment. I need a moment to collect myself. <laughs> oh, God. So I'm going to play this really quick clip of her by herself. And then in an interview with Sid Vicious, where she's asked about feminism, which I thought was very interesting. So this one's okay. just, uh, uh, the first one's just her interview. Sorry, just to go over that, uh, Malcolm's attitude once more. Yeah, he just, he didn't like me because I was a junkie. He tried to keep me and Sid apart for months and months and months. Like, we had to keep the clandestine secret, everything. And um, finally he just gave up because he couldn't do it. He just couldn't do it. Sid just kept saying, look. I want to hang around with who I want to hang around with, and I'll have to stay in my place who I want to stay in my place, and you're not going to tell me who not to. So just fuck off. And he just gave up. So now I guess we could say we're on speaking terms again. That was her talking. Um, Malcolm was their manager, and he tried so hard to separate them because 
She was literally the one supplying him with heroin incessantly. So this next clip is an interview. I forget who else is in it. It's it's Sid Vicious, Nancy Spongeon, and two other people in the punk scene that are part of the interview. But the woman asks Nancy about feminism, and I thought it was very interesting. Just this question to the ladies. Go ahead. Um, Could you turn your TV down just a hair? Okay. Um, what did I think about the feminist movement? The feminist. I'm, I'm very for it. I, I believe in it a lot. So do I. So does Sid. Sid's about the only male I know that's not a male chauvinist. He, he believes very strongly in You mean he beats on women as well as men? No, he doesn't beat on women at all. He be, you know, beats on anybody he gets in his way. But I, I think the feminist movement is... I'm is, a feminist. Um, it's just about the, the best thing around. I mean, I believe more in the feminist movement than I do in any political movements. Mm, I, I think it's, you know, I mean, I, I think the Equal Rights Amendment should have been put through. I believe in all that. You know, That's if I had good, more yeah. time, maybe I'd, you know, be more active in it. But I, I just believe in it very strongly for myself and as a way of living. So that was her talking a little bit about feminism. She's definitely got that Philly accent for sure. It's very funny for that sure. you say that because there's a bunch of interviews. Uh, she starts to fall into a British accent every so often. And you can definitely hear it. <laughs> yeah. And the you know what? I'll tell you. And I only know this from, from a couple of friends of mine who live out in Philly now and have for a, a little while. Like that Philly accent is like the strangest it's like a most unique yeah <laughs> it's a little it's, canadian <laughs> it's it's weird it's mm-hmm. i'm sorry for you guys out in philly but y'all got a weird accent <laughs> <laughs> and i just thought it was great that uh you could hear sid vicious in the background he's like oh, i believe in feminism i'm a feminist <laughs> he's fucking <laughs> out of his mind i Smoking I mean, a cigarette shirtless. I was like, hello. Yeah. But she <laughs> she actually sounds very articulate. You know, yeah. I mean, she's definitely like got clear, pretty clear ideas on some of these concepts, you know. She was extremely, extremely smart. Um, and not I do not think she was as abrasive as people thought she was. I think that she spoke her mind. And if mm-hmm. you're, you know. Not if you're a woman speaking your mind, that. you're yeah. automatically like abrasive, which is exactly. fucking you're ridiculous. Too loud. But, um, and yeah. I sometimes I I'm not I've never been a junkie. I've never done heroin, but sometimes I really could identify with Nancy because people would say shit like that about me, like "Oh, you're really loud," or like you're, I've been called intimidating my whole fucking life. Same. <laughs> I was like, okay. Same. <laughs> oh my god. So I get it. Um, and this was this was kind of in a time period where people were still holding on to those like very fifties housewife idea like ideas. Yeah. And the punk scene was absolutely the antithesis of all of that. So she I don't think she was as abrasive as people claimed that she was. No. Now I fully believed that like Sid Vicious really loved her. She was his real like a first real, real girlfriend. And they were extremely close, constantly together. But like I said, they were just not good for each other. They really brought out the worst in one another. They were, I think they both have such bad addictive personalities that they couldn't get Mm -hmm. away from each other. Mm -hmm. 
So the Sex Pistols began this tour of America in 1978, and their manager, Malcolm McLaren, made it clear that Nancy was not allowed on the tour. And this tour would be the end of the band, to be honest. Now, their dipshit manager, a lot of people say he was great, but I think he's a fucking idiot. He booked them in every conceivable place that would not allow punk rock, okay? They played the Bible Belt. They were playing the South. They played Texas and Alabama, okay? That doesn't seem smart. (laughs) No! You're in Bible-thumping country, and you have a bunch of British dudes coming in talking about anarchy, okay? We lived in a shitty cornfield, and Mm -hmm. I talked about anarchism and communism as a ways of political discussion, and people looked at me like I was fucking insane, okay? Yep. (laughs) When I said, oh, I'm an atheist. (gasps) Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, I get it. Like, that's like a no, okay? It's like a hard no. It just didn't jive, and eventually, they wound up going to the West Coast sooner than later, and Sid was in fucking heaven, okay? Because he had copious amounts of heroin readily available to him. Because, hello, California. Yep. (laughs) Now, the Sex Pistols played their very last show on January 14th, 1978 at the Winterland Ballroom in San Francisco. Sid acted like a total ass the entire time, was barely even fucking playing. And now, in a famous (laughs) act that Johnny Rotten yelled across the stage, he said, Ever get the feeling like you've been cheated? And then just stormed off the stage. Okay. Johnny Rotten is a fucking drama queen, in case you didn't know. <laughs> okay. So, the Sex Pistols broke up, um, but Nancy still thought that Sid could carry on and have his own solo career. So she became his self-appointed manager, and she rebranded him as a singer So they did away with the bass, and she moved them back to New York, where she had more connections to the music scene. And there was, of course, way more heroin. Oh, nice. (laughs) So the two moved into room 100 at the Chelsea Hotel, which also happened to be the former residence of such greats as Arthur Miller and Mark Twain. Oh, God, okay. This place, though, had become a shithole because it's the 1970s New York. (laughs) Right. It was rough. It was tumble. It hadn't been, you know swept away of its grit just yet. I mean, this was Times Square when it was full of, like, shitty nightclubs and porn theaters. But they chose that place because of its location close to a methadone clinic. They started this methadone program in the 70s in New York because of the rampant problem with heroin. Right. And if you're not familiar, methadone is basically a heroin Kind of substitute. It's like a substitute, it, yeah. It helps you wean off of intravenous drugs, um, although yeah. you can become addicted to methadone as well. Right. Even though they say you can't. <laughs> yeah. So they decided to try to clean up a bit, but they were still doing heroin, and their room at the Chelsea was their love nest, and their heroin den. Oh. So Vicious worked a bit that year doing performances as, at Max's Kansas City in New York, which was like the big to-do punk venue besides CPGB's. Okay. So he played there on the 28th, the 29th, and the 30th of September. And this was, this performance was recorded and eventually was released as an album months later, posthumously, and is like the only recorded music that Sid Vicious did in his solo career. Gotcha. That month, Spongeon's father visited them um, and stated that they were living in a state of filth and were so strung out that they didn't even know that he was there. In October, Nancy called her mother saying she was having kidney problems and needed money. 
and she admitted to her mother that Sid was extremely depressed and hitting her more. And her mother refused to send them money and like hung up on her. And that would be the last time that she actually ever spoke to her daughter again. Oh, on October 12th, 1978, Nancy Spungen was found on the floor of their bathroom in her undergarments wedged under the sink, covered in blood from a single stab wound to the abdomen. She was only 20 at the time of her death. Oh my gosh. And here is like a brief timeline of the events leading up to her discovery. And this was kind of uh, from records of people being interviewed and Sid Vicious's interview. 9.45 p.m., Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungen strolled down the hall from their room at the Chelsea Hotel to visit Kathy O'Rourke and Neon Leon Webster in Leon's room 119. Kathy, who had known Nancy for several years, described the event in these terms. Sid sat on Leon's bed, leafing through a portfolio of old photos of himself, stating, I've lost my looks. I really used to look good. Nancy paced the room, entreating the group to come up with some drugs, some real good drugs, and Sid sat quietly, stroking his face with one of his new knives. He then pointed the knife and said, no future. And he had the knife to his face. Nancy turned around and told him to fuck off, and he put the knife down. Kathy also remembers seeing Nancy bare her arm and make a muscle, admonishing Sid, feel my muscle, I'm strong. I carried Sid up from the restaurant. I can carry him, but he can't carry me. Midnight. Nancy and Sid left room 119. She went to her go-go dancing job in New Jersey. Leon claims that he went to Max's, but Vicious's manager, Malcolm McLaren, doubts that he went there because supposedly no one had saw him there. It's possible that he was at a different punk club called The Nursery. At 12.30, Leon states that the couple returned to their own room when they left his, but McLaren said that Sid told me he had left the hotel room around midnight, so there's some discrepancies in when they left and where they went. At 2.30 a.m., Rocket's Red Glare, which is a person... (laughs) Okay, that would be a great drag name. I just want to put that out there. Yes, well, this is him. He's actually an actor, and um, uh, we'll find out possibly maybe even a murderer. Oh. (laughs) So Rocket's Red Glare said that he received a frantic phone call at his queen's apartment from Nancy begging him to come to the room at the Chelsea and please bring some Duodens. If you're not familiar, that's a synthetic form of morphine. They also called him D4s on the street. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and she also requested some new hypodermic needles. At 3 a.m., according to Neon Leon and Leon's manager, Skip Wayne, Sid and Nancy were in the lobby around 3. Leon and Skip have made several contradictory statements about this, however. Approximately at 3.05 a.m., Lisa Garcia, who lived next door to Sid and Nancy in 103, had just come home. Minutes later, she heard two or three very loud knocks at her door and a male voice yelling, let me in, let me in, I'm not playing. Lisa said the voice frightened her and she did not open the door. Soon after, she went to sleep and did not wake up until the next morning on Thursday. Smart woman. At 3.15, Rockets arrived at the Chelsea and he claimed that he had been able to come up with the uh, drugs that Nancy had asked for. Nancy was wearing a long t-shirt over black underwear and Sid was lying on the bed in black pants and a shaggy sweater. They talked some about Rockets becoming Sid's bodyguard to protect him from street fights, but mostly about scoring Duodens for Nancy. At 3.30 to 4.45 approximately, the phone rang many times while Rockets was in the room. Nancy only picked it up once and had a brief conversation. Neither Nancy nor Sid made any outgoing calls. This is a quote from Rockets Red Glare. They were crazy about D4. She told me she would pay $40 for each D4. She would shoot six and Sid would shoot four. She had a higher tolerance than Sid, and it was the only thing that they could shoot. 
I'm an ex-addict. I would shoot Sid because he had collapsed veins. And anyway, he was not very good at it. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Because he wasn't really an addict. People were doing it for him. (laughs) Yep. Now, however, Rockets claims that there were no D4s to shoot up that night during the two hours he was in their room. I showed up there to be comforting. Nancy became agitated about not being able to score while Sid kept going to the door every time there was a noise and he would drag himself up. Now, at this time, they were actually on two and all, which were sleeping pills. Okay. Like copious amounts of sleeping pills. So Rockets Red Glare said two and alls are a funny thing that one minute you're up completely and out the next. Next you're up and you're a little ambulatory and then you're out the next. So according to him, Sid left the room twice briefly and came back. He went to the door once, and then he was out of it and fell back into bed. At one point, Nancy went to her bag and had about a couple hundred fifties and a couple hundred hundreds split out onto the floor. She told me that if I could get her 40 Dilaudens for her, that she would give me twice the price. She said to me, Rockets, you can make $800. Now this money, it was new money. She tells me that she had over $1,400 to spend on dope that night. From where? Oh my gosh. I'll tell you in a minute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm like, that's because they didn't have a ton of money. Yeah. Shortly before 5 a.m., Rockets left the couple in their room. He says that she, that he stopped at the front desk lobby to make a phone call and observed Stephen C., whom he identified as Nancy and Sid's regular Quaalude and two-and-all dealer, turning the corner and entering the elevator just before 7.30. Vera Mendelssohn, who lives next door to Sid and Nancy in room 102, recalls that sometime before 7.30 Thursday morning, she heard a series of moans coming from a woman in the room next door. She said that she was very frightened by the sound, which she described as coming from a person who was alone. It didn't sound as though someone was with her, she recalls, because she didn't call anyone's name. She was just moaning. When the sound of the moan ceased, Miss Mendelssohn fell back asleep. At 9.30 a.m., Herman Ramos, the desk man, received an outside the hotel call from a male claiming that there was trouble in room 100. Ramos sent Charles, the bellhop, upstairs to find out what was going on. At 10 a.m., before the bellhop returned... Sid Vicious called down to Ramos saying someone is sick and needed help. By 10, 10.30, Ramos called the ambulance for the and later the police. Approximately 10.30, Rob Braden, an IU student in room NYU, excuse me, student in room 105, left for school and saw Sid Vicious coming up the stairs and walking down the hall towards his room. At 10.45, the ambulance and the police from the 10th precinct arrive to discover Nancy's body in the bathroom. Now, Sid's recounts were noted by detectives, but I really urge people to be very cautious in believing the things that he was saying because he was going through withdrawal, had just woken up from a night of taking fucking tranks, and was completely fucking out of it. Yeah. So according to Sid, he recalls falling asleep around 1 a.m. He last remembered Nancy sitting on the edge of the bed, toying with a knife. They had just had a fight that included Sid hitting Nancy and Nancy hitting Sid back. He had ingested copious amounts of two and all. And he woke up around 10 that morning and he thought he had pissed himself, but quickly realized that he had a bunch of blood on him. He went into the bathroom and found Nancy sitting on the floor beneath the sink. She had a stab wound in her belly. According to Sid, she was still breathing at the time and there was not blood everywhere. He didn't think she was dying, so he went to the methadone clinic to get their doses of methadone. He had two doses of methadone, which is why I fully believe that he had no clue that she was actually dying. So when he came back, He had the methadone. He realized, oh my God, she's not breathing. There's fucking blood everywhere. So he attempted to get, like, to pick her up and to, like, clean her up of the blood. 
Yeah. And then when the police arrived, he was pacing the halls in a very confused state. Now, the police immediately thought Sid was the killer because, I mean, junkies be junkies. You know what I mean? Right, right. But there's a lot of evidence that states otherwise. Now, Sid had taken enough drinks to take out a fucking elephant, and um, he was out of it. Like, straight up fucking out of it. He was also taking methadone and hadn't had a whole lot of heroin, so he was in a very weakened state. Police also never questioned anyone who had been there that night, as in the people that had visited the room and the people that they went to visit before they went back to their room. The only questioned people were the ones who were living next door and the bellhop and the front desk man. Okay. There was also six additional sets of fingerprints in their room to which the police didn't even bother trying to match to anybody. Now, here are some prominent theories as to what actually happened. There's three of them, so kind of see what you think happened. Okay. Number one, the obvious one, Sid killed her in a stupor that night. To me, that is the least likely because he was, like I said, out of it from taking a truckload of fucking tranquilizers. <laughs> okay. Also, this guy was like 100 pounds soaking wet and barely could fucking hold his own weight. So, like, I highly doubt it. Number two, Rocket's Red Glare or one of the other people that night got into a fight with Nancy and stabbed her and then left. This, I think, is probably the most likely of the theories. The blood on Sid... Okay in my belief, was actually from Nancy trying to wake him up to get help. She found her way into the bathroom to try to clean her up and fix herself, and then she passed out from blood loss. This seems the closest to the truth because Sid and Nancy had about $25,000 in cash on them at the time, and it was missing. Oh. They received this cash because Sid had actually just gotten a record deal, and that was his advance. Okay. Um, and also, Nancy had just gotten back from working, so she had a couple hundred dollars on her herself. Now, Rocket's okay. Red Glare was stated to have later had a wad of cash with him shortly after the incident, tied with a purple hair tie, which was actually the signature of what Nancy would do with her cash. She didn't have a wallet. She would carry a wad of cash tied with a purple hair tie. Okay. Now, shortly before his death, in 2001, Rocket's Red Glare reportedly bragged to someone that he had killed Nancy. He also was an extremely bad drug addict and known to tell a lot of lies, so this could be a truth or it could be a complete fucking fabrication for street credit. Right. Either way, he died of an overdose, too, because, again, junkies be junkies. Right. <laughs> He's been interviewed a few times, and you can find this. He was a, a like a low-level in New York at the time, so he's in a lot of uh, very weird kind of B-movies. But it is the prominent theory amongst a lot of Sid and Nancy's friends that he was the one that fucking killed him. Okay. Now, the third theory is that Nancy was having a fit because she couldn't get any heroin and had made threats to the people and so decided to stab herself in the stomach to scare the person into helping her. Now, Nancy did have a history of self-harm and had been hospitalized several times for suicide attempts. This also might be the answer as to why there weren't reports of a woman screaming for help. Instead, people just heard those quiet moaning and faint cries. Mm -hmm. So Sid Vicious was charged with her murder immediately, and he was sent to Rikers Island and was then released on bail to the care of his mother. Attorney F. Lee Bailey was commissioned to handle the defense for Sid Vicious, and they called on a private investigator to look into the details that the police overlooked. F. Lee Bailey, you say? F. Lee fucking Bailey. That motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> 
also, uh, he was released on $50,000 bail posted by his record company, Virgin Records, and it was supposedly working on a new record. So they were like, we're going to pay your medical bills and your legal fees. Mm-hmm. So after a week, he was released and Vicious tried to commit suicide by slashing his wrists. He was quoted as saying, I want to join Nancy and keep up my end of the pact. So they supposedly had a suicide pact that if one of them died, the other person had to kill themselves. Okay. He even wrote a note, which was in his left pocket, and it said, We had a death pact, and I have to keep up my half of the bargain. Please bury me next to my baby. Bury me in my leather jacket, jeans, and motorcycle boots. Goodbye. So he spent time in the psychiatric ward of Bellevue Hospital following his suicide attempt and was released into the custody and the care of his mother on November 6th. Sid landed himself back in jail in December of 1978 after assaulting Patty Smith's brother in a bar with a broken bottle. After seven weeks of detention and de- detox in Rikers Island Jail, Vicious made bail again for $10,000 on February 1st, 1979. He actually was on his way to becoming clean because of his second jail stay. The evening of his release, he attended a party with his new girlfriend, Michelle Robison, and a few others in a New York punk scene. Shortly after he went to bed in the next room, his mother um, had stayed the night to make sure that he was okay and she was in the separate adjoining bedroom. Reports from people at the party stated that he was sad and that his mother wanted to do something to cheer him up. So she bought her almost clean addict son a ton of heroin. Oh my God. Good job, huh? <laughs> good, good momming. Way to be. Sid Vicious was found by his mother the next morning having OD'd on the heroin, which was tested to be at 87 or 80% purity. Okay? That's fucking hard. His mother denies claims that she fed her son heroin. Uh, most people in the scene did not believe that Sid killed Nancy. In fact, only Nancy's mother really believes that he did it. Wow. She wrote a book about her daughter called And I Don't Want to Live This Life, a mother's story of her daughter's murder, where she states that um, she believes that Vicious had something to do with uh, her daughter's death. Sid Vicious is only 21 at the time of his overdose. If you're interested in more stuff, like I said, like, there's a ton of books and a ton of documentaries on the subject. There's even that, you know, Gary Oldman movie that you can watch. It was pretty delightful. But I left the uh, police report and a couple pictures of Nancy because, like, I literally dressed like that. I was like, oh, my God, I had a sweater like yeah, that. Yeah, you did. I had a skirt like that. <laughs> I had a lot of yeah, things. Like, my like hair was crazy like that. into a time machine of Janelle. <laughs> Yep. So that is the tale of Sid and Nancy. Mm. Nikki, what do you think happened? I don't know. I feel Ooh. like I was all ready to believe because even if you're like out of it on quaaludes and just, you know, there could be times where you do things that you don't remember. Like that's not implausible, right? Mm-hmm. But when you had said that all of the money had been stolen, yeah. Like, that definitely is is suspicious. Uh-huh. Um, and I think definitely sort of points t- more towards Rocket's red glare. Because uh-huh. he had said that he had seen this money spilling out, right? Oh, yeah. He like, made didn't he make a several. statement like that? Yeah, he made a statement. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think that Nancy would, from what it sounds like, that she would have stabbed herself. So I think I'm actually with you on this one. That mm-hmm. that's probably the most likely of the theories. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very interesting.
Okay, so I want to talk about somebody who is not like the most recognized name in music, but had a hand in a lot of very recognizable stuff. Okay. So I'm going to talk about Jim Gordon. Are you familiar with Jim Gordon? Not his name, but I'm sure once you start mentioning who he's been dealing with. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he was born James Beck Gordon. But like I said, he's had a hand in many ways and many, many hits in big name bands as a session drummer. Uh-huh. So his first drum set was put together when he was eight years old. He put it together out of trash cans that he found. Um, Sick. <laughs> and seeing his love of music, Gordon's parents decided to pay for music lessons. So he got his own like actual drum set at the age of 12 and then continued to play and practice and play and practice. Really, the only apparent sort of like stain on his childhood was his father's alcoholism. But there was a point in time where his mom somehow encouraged his father to go to Alcoholics Anonymous and he was able to get sober and sort of like return to a regular non-alcoholic life, which is good. But even Gordon in like later interviews is like, yeah, no, I had a pretty good childhood, like nothing too crazy. During high school, Gordon played with the Burbank Symphony Orchestra. He toured Europe and he played the Tournament of Roses Parade um, with like a youth band. Uh, remember those days, Vicky? <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> hey, I was that marching band nerd. I'll admit it. It was great. Yeah, I was in I choir. Was we traveled together. <laughs> so fun. He eventually began playing clubs in West Hollywood and West LA with a band called Frankie Knight and the Jesters. And... When college came around, Gordon's parents, like, really were strongly encouraging him to attend, but, like, higher education really wasn't a thing that he was super interested in. He even turned down a a music scholarship from UCLA. Honestly, you probably didn't really need it back then. (laughs) No. No, because at this time in the early 60s, like, the music scene was really blossoming. It was, like, the perfect time for studio musicians There's so much music being made at this point in time. During his shows with the Jesters, Gordon was scoped by the bass player for the Everly Brothers, who asked Gordon to be their drummer for the 1963 tour of England. Now, Gordon actually joined them the following year for another tour before returning home. And from there, he tried to really break into the studio scene. He would get his big break when Hal Blaine, who was another big uh, session drummer, contacted him. He was like, he's Hal Blaine is probably the most well-known name when it came to session drumming in L.A. at the time. And so he had started suggesting Gordon for the work that he was too busy for, which basically cemented Jim Gordon's name in the list of session greats. Now, Everyone was clamoring to get a hold of his talent and his sound. They talk a lot about like, because session drummers would bring in their own kits and they like each session drummer, depending on their kit, had a specific sound that like people were looking for. So they wanted the Jim Gordon sound. His most notable sessions include Pet Sounds by the Beach Boys. Gene Clark with the Gosden Brothers by Gene Clark, the Notorious Bird Brothers by the Birds, 
and the hit song Classical Gas by Mason Williams. Hell yeah, Classical Gas. <laughs> I have that That's <laughs> I was like, I don't know if I know that song or not. I forgot to look it up. Do I know that song? Should I know that song? I'm sure you I'm sure you won't. There's a lot of that I won't or that I will. <laughs> or I I feel like you'll know it in, when you hear it. That's how There's a lot, a of, lot these are. of this. <laughs> my parents obviously came from an era where a lot of this music was big. They did a pretty good job of playing a lot of this classic stuff when we were kids. So, like, mm-hmm. I'm sure that there's, I would hear it and be, I don't oh, know. Yeah. <laughs> I have, uh, like I said, with my record collection, I have my grandpa's and my dad's records and then mine. Mm-hmm. So, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure it's a lot of stuff from this time period, too. <laughs> and even before, I got some weird, like, 1940s Italian music. Oh, nice. Strange stuff. <laughs> So by 1964, Gordon had met and married a woman named Jill, who was also involved in the entertainment industry, and they both managed to get on the rock show. It was a primetime rock show called Shindig, and (laughs) eventually, I know, great name. (laughs) Eventually, they bought a house in North Hollywood near Gordon's parents. Now, he had started hanging around with uh, Leon Russell and Rita Coolidge, who connected Gordon with the soul duo Delaney and Bonnie Bramlett. Through this connection, Delaney and Bonnie invited Gordon on their tour of England in 1969. Now, just before the tour, Jim Gordon and his wife, Jill, got a divorce. Now, the England tour added two musicians who were out of work at the time, Eric Clapton and George Harrison, which... Which proved to be a really (laughs) successful tour. Now, as we've talked about, of course, at this time, alcohol and drugs were just incredibly prolific in the music scene. And Gordon certainly did his share of heroin, mescaline, speed, MDA, cocaine, acid, and marijuana. All the full spectrum. All the flavors yes. of the rainbow. <laughs> now, at some point, and it's it's sort of unclear when, um, but Gordon began hearing voices at some point in his life. Ruh-roh. <laughs> yeah. So there is some references to this beginning in his childhood, but there isn't anything solid that's like, at this age, he started hearing voices. Because a, a lot of articles talk about, at least in his adult years, the drug use was a way to sort of like quiet the voices or at least his attempt to quiet the voices. Yeah. You hear that a lot with people who have schizophrenia. Yes. Yeah. But Gordon, he was so successful at the time that even if this was an issue, he was not letting it get in his, in the way of his music career. And I think almost being successful like that actually helped a little bit because he had something else to focus his energy on. Mm Mm-hmm. So he was able to sort of just, like, put this mental illness in a box and leave it. So by this point, he had started dating Rita Coolidge, and the two had been going strong for about a year. But it all came to an end after an incident at the Warwick Hotel in New York. According to a Rolling Stones article, Rita Coolidge said, quote, He asked me to step out into the hall. I thought he wanted to talk. Instead, he hit me. And this really was all it took for Coolidge to end that relationship. She was just like, er, no more of Good that. Girl. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bye, boy. <laughs> right. And he afterwards, like, 
said he felt really bad about it. He regretted it for a really long time because that was a relationship to him that was really like valuable. Like it was, it was one that he, I think, realized I fucked that up. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after another tour wrapped up, Gordon was asked to join George Harrison, Phil Spector, which we could do a whole other episode on Phil Spector. <laughs> And Eric Clapton, as they worked on Harrison's first solo album, All Things Must Pass. When the studio recordings finished, Clapton scooped up Gordon, along with Bobby Whitlock, Carl Rattle, and Dwayne Allman, to form Derek and the Dominoes. Uh uh Now, if you don't know who Derek and the Dominoes are, like, I didn't until it was like... Are you for real? Hold on. (laughs) Well, okay. this is one of these cases where I know the one big hit song that they did, but I didn't realize that was Derek and the Dominoes. I just knew the song. So the big song is called Layla. It's the biggest hit from the only studio album from Derek and the Dominoes. If you don't know what song that is, it's the one that's like... Okay. So... Yes. Yeah. That was pretty good, right? I think that gets the point across. Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because um, Clapton has always, like, unfairly said that that was his song. Yeah. Um, because he continued to play it after they broke up. So, like, that's why I, it's funny to me. <laughs> yeah, and he's, so in that song, there's, like, that, like, the first half of it is, like, a rock thing, and then they go into this piano break, like, midway through the song. Piano interlude, yeah. which is featured in Goodfellas, when everyone yes. is found dead. Yes. After the heist. (laughs) My favorite part. Yeah, it's that piano part that's like, well, I can't think of it at the moment, so I'm not going to try to sing it. But that part is actually credited to Jim Gordon writing that, which has also been disputed because there's been allegations that he stole it from Rita Coolidge, (laughs) which is a whole thing. But anyway, the point is, he was playing with Derek and the Dominoes when that song came out. (laughs) Then... Uh, the band went on their only tour before breaking up in 1972. 70s. Yeah. All these one night stands with bands. <laughs> yeah. And there was like, there was some infighting too regarding the the marketing of the band and specifically the song and the album having to be like a, I th- it, if I remember correctly, the way it sounded, it was like the record companies wanted to market it as an Eric Clapton thing. And the rest of the band was like, nah. Uh, hell no. <laughs> yeah. Like, we did this too. Mm-hmm. So again, from the Rolling Stones article, quote, the group broke up acrimoniously after its only tour in 1972, citing differences over money and artistic direction, but the drugs had much to do with it too. Quote, the producers wouldn't pay me for Layla, Gordon recalls, because they said I would be dead in six months anyway. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. Which I find it really interesting that that the the record companies were helping Sid Vicious out so much at the time. Mm-hmm. Getting out of jail and all of this, considering his like prolific drug use, right? Right. Yeah. But that was a couple years difference, you know? Right. Right. Because that was cool in 1977. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Gordon continued his heavy drug use, mainlining heroin regularly. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> cool, cool, cool. Like you do. Yes, as one does. 
John Lennon recruited Gordon to work on his solo album, Imagine. And then he drummed for Traffic on their album, The Low Spark of High Heeled Boys, and toured with them following the release of that album. He stopped off in London and worked a bit for producer Richard Perry. And he, like, worked on a bunch of stuff, including Carly Simon's You're So Vain. Afterward, Gordon returned to L.A., where he continued to really be in high demand. He was, like, one of the the most high-demand session drummers. Um, and so he worked with the likes of Steely Dan, Frank Zappa, Johnny Rivers, and Maria Muldaur. Sweet. Jim Gordon calls this time period the best of his life, even though his drug habit had progressed a bit from heroin to speedballs. Cool, cool, cool. Speedballs are the thing. <laughs> Which, if you don't know what a speedball is, it's basically heroin mixed with cocaine. Fun times. It's like, yeah, it's literally like the next tier of like horrific drug abuse. <laughs> so Gordon's personality and attitude slowly began changing. And some of this is due in part to his mental illness. Some of this is due, I would say much of this is due in part to his extensive drug use. Hmm. And See a it, theme. Yeah. <laughs> this is why I was like, it's not just the punk scene. It was like the whole music scene was just like, let's do all the drugs and drink all the booze. <laughs> like, <laughs> crazy. So again, from the Rolling Stones article, quote, it was as if there was a struggle for control over him and he was slowly losing. He went from warm to polite, from friendly to pleasant. From quiet to uncommunicative. During session breaks, he would stand alone in the corner, sometimes mumbling to himself. He told a friend not to give out his telephone number. He didn't want to talk to anyone. End quote. So he was basically turning into a recluse, um, often disappearing for like days. He had all of these insecurities about like not being good enough uh, that were starting to surface into really true paranoia. This was sort of seeping into his personal relationships as well, affecting his marriage to singer Renee Armand. One afternoon, when she was coming home from the store, Gordon confronted her saying, quote, I know what you're doing. She was like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he cleared things up by pointing to three objects on the floor that he said made a magic triangle and accused Renee of bringing evil spirits into the house. Oh, here we go. Yes. Uh, she tried to explain that she wasn't responsible, and Gordon punched her, resulting in several cracked ribs. Renee ended the marriage uh, <laughs> very quickly after Good that. Good job. I am loving all of these women who are like, okay, bye, fuck you. <laughs> I was going to say, I want to give all the credit in the world to these women in his life, because just about every single one of them, like the first instance of abuse or violence, they were like, all right, peace. I'm going to get out of here, because clearly... This is not going to work. So Uh good on all of them. Now, after she left and Gordon had some time on his own where he like wasn't in a relationship with anybody, wasn't living with anybody, the voices he had heard softly throughout his life started to become the only thing that he could hear. There were specific like voices that he could identify and had a clear image of what these voices looked like in his head including a man with a white beard, a young blonde woman, someone described as dark and Greek. 
Okay. <laughs> this is just what they said. Um, <laughs> and then there were other voices in his head that represented people in his family, including his brother, his aunt, and probably most importantly, his mother. This is so in this Rolling Stones article, which I'll link to in the show notes. It was a really great article, but they actually went and interviewed Jim Gordon for this article. And so this is kind of what he said about this time period where he was hearing all of these voices. He said, quote, the voices started out friendly. They were giving me little pointers, how to take care of myself and the house, how to shop. I was glad for the help. I was getting ready for the rest of my life. I thought it was pretty strange, but there was nothing I could do about it. I heard them all the time. They would tell me if I was doing right or wrong, and I took it in like a fool. They said I had some kind of responsibility to God and the country. I was the king of the universe, they said. I had to make sacrifices, and I had to do what they said. That's when my mother started making me eat half my food. Okay. (laughs) So in this reference, when he talks about his mother making him eat half of his food, he's talking about his voice mother in his Mm -hmm. head. And at this point, like, he basically stopped eating and was instead, like, supplementing his diet with alcohol. And... Yeah, sounds about right. They're talking about him, like, daily drinking fists of of vodka, like, every single day. But he was, like, still working at the top of his game. He was still one of the most highly requested studio drummers. But the women in his life sort of became this revolving door for a little bit even with his reputation now of somebody that's a little bit volatile, that's like, you know, obviously has these addiction problems. There was one woman whose name was Stacy Bailey, who stayed for a longer period of time. She had moved in with Gordon and the two seemed to have a happy relationship until one night when Bailey woke up to Gordon strangling her in her sleep. He would let go when she was about to lose consciousness and like repeated this over and over again for a little while throughout the night and she that night ran crying and screaming to the neighbors and gordon chased after her like it was all a joke i was trying to see how much you loved me like okay yeah that's not that's not funny bro (laughs) no worst prank ever she left stacy bailey left (laughs) after that which again kudos kudos to you girl The voices were getting worse and worse and worse, and Gordon did his best to, like, keep this to himself. He really was not talking about these voices that he was hearing in his head. And at this point, it also seemed like the voice of his mother was the loudest, and he repeatedly would just, like, tell it to stop. When that didn't work, he would call his actual mother on the phone and told her to stop. Okay. Which, of course, was very confusing because she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not doing anything. So she expressed concern and really, like, encouraged Gordon to go and seek help. So he checked into the Van News Psychiatric Hospital for the first of around 14 times over the next six years. When Gordon had failed to show up to an appointment at one point, the doctors called Gordon's mother, who found him unconscious. He had overdosed on prescribed sedatives in a suicide attempt. Shit. Through outpatient therapy, Um, he did survive that suicide attempt, by the way. I should say that before I go on. Through outpatient therapy, Gordon continued to pick up small, like, TV and commercial gigs. He wasn't really doing a ton of, like, 
session drumming because people were like, okay, pretty clearly there's something going on here and we do not want to touch that with it. Like, you don't want to be associated with that as a studio. He went on a short tour stint in 1978, but came back to L.A. worse for the wear. A few months and drinking binges later, Gordon checked himself into Valley Presbyterian Hospital, where he threatened to kill a nurse. After a few weeks, Gordon again checked himself out against doctor's advice and continued his drinking binges. At this point, for all intents and purposes, like I said, he was no longer a professional in the industry. He had completely stopped playing drums. He would go through periods of literally no personal hygiene, just like days of not showering or brushing his teeth or like anything. His mother's voice in his head had gotten louder and louder and louder. So loud, in fact, that it really became indistinguishable between the voice in his head and the real person in real life. They were one and the same at this point. In May 1983, Gordon learned of plans that his mother had to move to Seattle, which was something that, like, the voice in his head was not super happy about. Mm. On June 1st, 1983, Gordon called his mother in the evening saying, you're bugging me again. I'm going to kill you. She, of course, was disturbed by this and called police. And they basically said, there's nothing that we can do. Like, maybe you should keep your lights on. (laughs) Which I'm just like, oh, my God. Okay. Gordon called again later in the evening saying the same things, but his mother didn't have anything else that she could do, really. So the next day, she called the city's attorney to discuss getting a restraining order. Um, but there was like a ton of red tape that she had to go through and she was kind of getting the run, run around. So she just got discouraged and was like, fuck this. I guess I'll just like wait it out because it wasn't very long, like a month maybe, that she was going to be moving away. Then, only two days after the threatening phone calls, Gordon showed up at her apartment armed with a hammer and a butcher's knife. He struck her in the head with a hammer four times, and she screamed loudly enough that the neighbors heard and called police. When she hadn't died from the blows, Gordon stabbed her in the chest three times, leaving the butcher's knife in her chest. Then he left and went to a bar where he drank heavily and then returned home and drank another fifth of vodka before police arrived. He confessed almost immediately. It wouldn't be until Gordon was on trial in the spring of 1984 that he was officially diagnosed with acute paranoid schizophrenia. This whole time, nobody had ever, even going to any of the mental health facilities, like had not been diagnosed schizophrenic so weird yeah but i guess he, he didn't talk about his voices and he was i don't think an alcoholic so and a drug addict so it's like right right yeah after uh, thinking about it now like all of those trips to the, to psychiatric hospitals and mental health facilities like i guess if you're not talking about the voices in your head nobody's gonna know about them right like yeah because they're just gonna think it's psychosis from rampant drug use yeah yeah so Unable to meet the incredibly strict standards for an insanity defense in California, Gordon was convicted of second-degree murder and received a sentence of 16 years to life imprisonment. His sentence has been served in multiple institutions, including California, California's Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo, Atascadero State Hospital, and the State Medical Corrections Facility in Vacaville. 
He has been denied parole twice as the state considers him a danger to himself and to others. Interestingly enough, he is one of the few, if not the only, I don't, I didn't look too far into this, but he may be the only person to win a Grammy while incarcerated. <laughs> maybe. I don't know. Maybe Death Row Records is in there somewhere. <laughs> that's, that's honestly, that's what I was wondering. Cause I know there are some other, like big musical artists that have spent time in jail, but I don't know if they've ever won Phil a Grammy Spectre? while they've been there. Yeah. <laughs> Phil Spector is a perfect one. Uh, maybe. <laughs> so in 1992, the song Layla was re-released on Eric Clapton's Unplugged album, which sold 7 million copies. He was still credited on the song on the album. And so when the song won, he also won <laughs> and they like announced his name and he, in this article, they talks about watching it on TV. <laughs> he received an invite, like, at the prison. <laughs> Sorry. That was really funny. <laughs> yeah. He received an invite at the prison. He watched it on TV. He had said that when they... Yo, dude, you just won. And, of course, Eric Clapton wow. did not mention him at all in his acceptance speech. Yeah. And, yeah. So... well. I mean, Eric Clapton's a bit of a twat, so. <laughs> Which is really unfortunate because I feel like he makes good music. There's some of these people who I'm like, you make really yeah. good content, really good movies, really good music, whatever. You're just kind of a dick. Like, yeah. why you got to be like That's that? That's how a lot of them are. <laughs> I know. Why you got to be like that? Like, what did you expect was going to happen? You weren't going to get famous? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, that's the story of Jim Gordon, the... Most unknown, well-known <laughs> music murderer, I suppose. He started, like, talking about it. And for a minute, there's another psychedelic, like, guitarist from the 60s, Rocky Erickson, who had almost an identical story. Really? But he didn't kill anybody. <laughs> I was going to ask, did he kill his mom, too? <laughs> he didn't kill anybody, but he was, like, he did drugs. He was in and out of psychiatric hospitals. Like... Almost identical. Fucking yeah. Nuts. Yeah. It's wild because it's it's like not even not even is it just like this assumption that the amount of drugs and alcohol that you're doing is causing your psychosis. Like not even just that. There was such a gap between mental health and like people wanting to acknowledge that mental health was a real problem at the time. The the interesting though, the difference between that your story and Rocky Erickson's is that he was committed to an institution and he was involuntarily given electroshock therapy. Oh shit! And was con and he had they diagnosed him like pretty quickly with schizophrenia. Really? So that's like the the other extreme end of it is like they knew he had schizophrenia and he that the treatment back then was electroshock therapy or right. uh, hydrotherapy, where right. they would just put you in a freezing cold tub, which is like what? How was that? What? <laughs> yeah and and i think i mean there's a lot of these gaps that we're still bridging it's better but it's still like not great in the united states like the the yeah. availability of these mental health services i think people are just now getting more comfortable talking about it so you know it's i, I it's just like i don't know it's real you wonder if he would have gotten I feel entirely like, different. Yeah, I feel like sobriety would have helped significantly. Yeah. 
But honestly, if he would have went, like, he probably would have gotten the same treatment if he would have went into a facility and they diagnosed him with schizophrenia. He would have gotten horrible shock treatments. Right. Yeah. (sighs) God. Well. (laughs) Mental health awareness. (laughs) Yeah. If you need something a little bit more uplifting, hopefully whatever ad is going to play after this is more uplifting than this. For an at-home electroshock therapy treatment. No! Um, why don't you check out this podcast? Hi, I'm Brienne. I'm Courtney. And I'm Olivia. And together we make up Super Serious Social Justice. We get together each week to talk about a very serious topic. No, really. We've talked about police shootings, politics, mental illness, disability, race, gender, marriage, kids, pretty much everything. I mean, and also farts. There is a lot of farting. And belching. What we're saying is that we're like you. We're normal people who want to be kind, but also be able to joke about bodily functions. So we've created this podcast to make tough topics accessible and fun. And we even stuck some cat pictures on our website to lure you in. So join us every Wednesday for a new episode of Super Serious Social Justice. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and all your podcasting apps or at sssjcast.com. All right, folks, that has been this week's episode. Um, very interesting. Now off. No, okay. <laughs> really carrying that punk attitude through. I huh? know. Aren't you? Well, I'm going for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you liked this episode and you want to see more like this, you can find every episode we've ever done at ever <laughs> badtastepodcast.com. They're all there. I would say just skip the first like 10. And no. the first Just five. Know that they're not of good quality. The first in the sound two. department. <laughs> yeah. But the content's still good. <laughs> it's pretty okay. We were still getting our bearings at, in those early days. <laughs> oh, God. It's just funny to think back on. Anyway, that's all <laughs> at bad, badtastepodcast.com. There you can also find merch to, I mean, links to merch. <laughs> merch to links. The merch Easter eggs. (laughs) There's also a link to our donate page if you want to support the show financially. We're just two regular people doing some regular stuff, so... Because podcasts aren't free, guys. (laughs) I mean, ours is, but it's not free for us. It's not free to make. (laughs) It's free for you. Anyway, not the point. (laughs) (laughs) Capitalism. (laughs) Uh, Janelle, you got anything else before we close out? Go... Find the music that we talked about today and listen to it and and see if you can hear the murder creeping up inside of it. Voices in my head. <laughs> <laughs> oh my um, god. Alright. Uh I got no. Our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshevsky, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks. Goodbye. Piss off. Ten young women have left their bodies on the hillsides along the highway. It was as if a wave of evil washed over this town. We are all people in some form or another.